Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. For years, you have been asking me to do a podcast about Thomas Cromwell. Now, even though I've read quite a bit about his life, I never felt like I could do his story the justice it deserved. But today is the day. My guest today is author Caroline Angus. Caroline is one of the leading authorities on Thomas Cromwell, Her research on him has been so extensive that she has published a trilogy called the Queenmaker series. Today, Caroline will help us better understand Thomas Cromwell. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and owner of TudorsDynasty.com. Telling the stories of those who lived centuries before us is what I enjoy doing most. Whether it be a show on one subject or an interview with an author or historian, I'll bring you the tales of 16th century England. Before I get started today, I need to take a minute to thank the folks who became new patrons since the last episode. Hanan S. and Melissa A., thank you so much for your support. Your support and the support of all my other patrons really has meant the world to me. And it's support like yours that encourages me to keep you entertained and informed. And at the beginning of the next season, which is September 2020, I'll be changing the layout of my show. <laughs> I want to continue with interviews, but I also want to go back to my roots and maybe just talk about one subject. I also want to add other subjects, keeping in mind that the overall show length will end up being longer. What other things would you like me to inform you of or entertain you with? Like this day in history, uh, book recommendations, any other ideas? And my patrons will be allowed to vote on what they'd like to see added, and then I'll do just that. If you'd like to cast your vote and aren't a patron, you can go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and just click Become a Patron, and then go cast your vote. You, along with all the other patrons, have the opportunity to control one of the segments of my show in the next season. A full list of patrons can be found at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Painted as an evil mastermind, Thomas Cromwell's reputation, like Thomas Seymour's, has not done them any favors, yet authors like Hilary Mantle have returned him to his human form. Thomas Cromwell, the man. Let's chat with Caroline Angus about the man, the myth, the legend. Thomas Cromwell. Caroline, welcome to the show. Hello, I am so grateful to be here. I hope I can be an ounce as interesting as all your previous guests. Don't underestimate yourself. I'm sure this will be fascinating because today we are going to talk about Thomas Cromwell. You have written three books on Thomas Cromwell already. Is that correct? Yes, I've got three at the moment covering from 1529 right through to his execution in 1540. And then the next book will be about his daughter, 
in the 1540s itself. What made you decide to use Thomas Cromwell as your subject? He's always, to me, been the most interesting man within the Tudor period. Well, until recently, people didn't know a lot about Thomas Cromwell. And it was that TV show, The Tudors, that was on about 10 or so years ago now. My mother had it on TV and she said, oh, look at this and look at this and look at this. And I thought, who's that guy? I want to know who that guy is. And it was Thomas Cromwell. It's not the main people I find as interesting. It's the people that are sort of in the background. They're the ones doing the work. They're the ones with the interesting stories. And certainly someone who's risen through the ranks. That, to me, is far more interesting than someone who was born for all these favours and all this prestige. Someone who's actually earned it is what got my attention. So you've put in so much research into his life over the years. What has surprised you the most? I think that we know the time period so well, and yet there was this person who was sitting right at the top of the prestige of it all and there was not a lot known about him it was he was generally forgotten for about 400 years only for a few translations of different works to come out within sort of the 1800s and then in the early 1900s he was sort of suddenly he reappeared as a villain as this henchman is a word that's often used this politician this horrible man who killed a queen and he destroyed all the monasteries when, in fact, it was all made up on very, very little information. And it's only sort of in the last 10 to 15 years he's sort of been recast and then sort of rebuilt into this hero. But then he's not a villain and he's not a hero. He's something in the middle. And here was this huge character that hasn't really been used all that much. When all the information is there, it was just not being used too much. One of the things you just mentioned um, was Showtime's The Tudors, where many of us were introduced maybe to The Tudors for the first time or really got a look at it, you know, playing out in what we would consider real life. Now, one of the things I feel like that 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 TV show did was it made Thomas Cromwell look like he he was very low born. But that's not the truth, is it? It's not entirely true. His father generally run an alehouse. He's thought of as a blacksmith, as a common sort of slur, but it was more that most men could do most jobs if they needed to. He ran his own business, and Cromwell's mother, whose first name is usually considered Catherine, she was from minor gentry, her family. They were not, you know, right at the bottom of the ladder. So it was sort of, they were not quite yeoman, but they weren't you know, really bottom of the barrel either. They were somewhere in the middle, sort of making their way up when he was already born. So no, he wasn't right at the bottom. He was educated as a child. So he's sort of a little bit up from what I think what he's considered. You know, there's a lot of, you know, Hilary Mantel made it as a boy who was beaten by a violent father. And none of that was true. That's the fictional portrayal. So, yeah, he started a little bit higher than he's considered, but certainly nothing compared to the nobility of the court that he lived in in his later life. In 1500, Thomas Cromwell left Putney. Yes, that's right. He just, he, I think he was one of those children who was bored easily, got into a bit of trouble, 
and he needed to sort of go off into the world and see what was happening and have an adventure. So that's when he disappeared and he sort of turned up somewhere in the low countries, probably in Flanders before he moved on to France and uh, joined the mercenary army of all things. I'm not sure why anyone would make that choice, but he did and got to march all the way down to Naples into battle only three years later. When did he return to England? There isn't a set date in which he returned. He lived in Florence for around 10 years. Around 1514, he has logged as back in London as a lawyer, but he was more spending sort of six months a year in England and then six months back in Rome, just going back and forth, dealing with English issues for the Pope and things, you know, in Rome that needed to be done. There was a lot of English people there at the time. And he was just sort of going back and forth, helping people out with different projects because he wasn't trained as a lawyer. He didn't have any qualifications, but he was working on other people's behalf. It wasn't really until sort of about 15, 18, 15, 19 that he settled in England full time. And then he married his wife, Elizabeth. Do we have any idea of how or when they met exactly? They know from her father that he lived in one town over from Putney. So it's generally sort of thought she was from that general area where Thomas grew up. But all his friends he had at the time he grew up with, they were related to him. He had quite a big family, an extended family. He always went back to those people. Even when he was right at the very top of the court, he was always trying to favour the people that he'd grown up with. So it would be very likely he would have picked a woman from that same area, yeah. It really sounds like he was a man for the people. Well, he was one of the people, I think, would probably be the best way to put it. He rose up, but in that time, he wasn't necessarily welcomed, as we know, amongst the, the different ranks. But the people he started with did accept him. They knew him. They knew where he came from. They liked him for who he was and what he did. They weren't seeking to make something out of him. They didn't want anything. They were his friends. They were the people that he trusted. Even once he worked for Cardinal Wolsey, and he went through a very rough period when his wife and his daughters died. And, you know, he was, you can sort of see him almost thinking, this could be the end for me. He was making his will. He was calling in his debts. He was an extremely miserable man. And he called entirely on the people he knew when he was young. None of the higher-ranked officials that he'd met in that time, he went straight back to his friends and his extended family. That's ultimately what was the most important thing to him. When did he begin working for Woolsey and in what capacity? Uh, Cromwell was working for the Marcus of Dorset, um, Thomas Gray, and that job was only around a year he was admitted to Gray's Inn, which is, you know, like passing the legal board in England. And at the same time, Wolfie needed somebody who was fluent in Italian and knew the law because he was building his own tomb, he was building new colleges, and he was dealing with Rome. He just needed somebody who could do the language skills, essentially, for him. And Cromwell met all the criteria, and by that stage, because he'd worked for Thomas Gray, he was starting to become quite well-known. He'd already done one season in Parliament, and uh, they're not actually sure who recommended him to Wolsey, but 
ultimately Wolsey needed someone to dissolve about 30 monasteries in order to pay for his colleges he was building. And Cromwell was the right person for the job. He sought Cromwell out rather than the other way around. Now you had mentioned um, his daughters. Now, Thomas had at least three kids that I know of, Gregory, Anne, and Grace. Were there any others? There was also Jane. There's not a lot known about Jane. She was illegitimate. We don't know who her mother was. It seemed that around the time that Cromwell's wife died, um, he's had some sort of little indiscretion, which, you know, for most men of the court is pretty common. And she was born somewhere between sort of 1528 to 1532. And um, he's taken the child in and looked after her. And she's also spent time with Gregory once he'd grown up and had his own household. He took care of Jane and she went on to become a Catholic of all things. Um, luckily, Cromwell didn't know that. But yeah, she's not very well known. Some people do sort of deny that she even existed because there were other Jane Cromwells. that just say was, you know, a big extended family. But I chose to sort of look at it as that that was his daughter. There was no reason for him to keep her a secret. If it had been a niece or a cousin, he wouldn't have needed to, you know, make little notes to sort of hide her, her interest in his household. So I think it was a daughter, and uh, he's taken care of her, even though he didn't really need to. Um, whether or not he helped with the mother, whether she survived, we don't know. Is she the one that your next book is going to be about? Yes. Um, oh, I'm fascinated. I find I... Jane quite... It, she's interesting because she, I can write literally anything about her, and that's why I enjoyed writing it, because I write... Thomas Cromwell, but I also write um, Nicoletta Frescobaldi, who's another fictional character who works as secretary for Thomas Cromwell. And then there's also Jane. And I'm able to make fictional people sort of living in within the time period that we know what happened. It, you don't have to take someone's story and run with it. I can make this whole big sort of fictional tale around these real events, which is really fun for me. So for Jane, I can write quite literally anything. I can put her in the court. I can have her off with the Medici's in France. It doesn't make any difference. So she's a lot of fun. So now we've, you know, you've piqued everybody's interest in this new book that you're working on. Do you have any idea when this will be published? Um, at the moment, roughly next November. I don't have a set date yet. But I think around early November it should be out. Fingers crossed. Um, got a lot of work to do on the editing still. But yeah, hopefully November. And it should cover right through at the stage until 1550, by oh. which time the Seymours are definitely in their decline. <laughs> you know I Sorry. love the Seymours. <laughs> well, I'll have to have you on the show again when um, when that book is published so we can talk more about it then. Yeah, I'm looking forward to sort of seeing the downfall of the Seymours. I've got them quite prominently in the book. And of course, Gregory Cromwell was, you know, King Edward's uncle by marriage. So they are very much associated with the court. They were very high in favor, even though Gregory Cromwell was a very quiet man. And yeah, to see what the Seymours were getting up to, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'm writing Princess Elizabeth in it quite a bit as well. And to be honest, I don't like her very much. 
So to have to write the Seymours and Princess Elizabeth, yes, I certainly hope I don't disappoint you. <laughs> well, I can tell you right now, the Seymours, they were just up to trouble. <laughs> yes, yeah, there was definitely a little bit of skullduggery, but I think everybody was. And, you know, Cromwell was into every sort of little secret plot that was going on. So, yeah, they make it very interesting. So it wasn't very long after Cardinal Wolsey fell from power and died that it seemed that Cromwell was in the perfect position to replace him. How did that work out exactly? I think that, was, well, depending on how you look at it, good luck or bad luck, Cromwell really liked Wolsey. He decided to fight for him on his behalf after he was attained. He went to the king and said, you know, please, you know, pleading this case. And Henry took pity on Cromwell and he gave him a thousand pounds. Of course, that's a huge sum of money at the time to give to Wolsey and to move him out of town, get him out of the way. And hopefully everyone would sort of forget about him. If he was forgiven and tucked away, he wouldn't have to be killed and Anne Boleyn would be happy. Yeah, and Cromwell was just sort of there. He was in the king's face and he got a position in Parliament. He called on his old friends, and that way he had a vote of what happened to Wolsey. He had an opinion. He could at least try and argue his master's case, and that's what he did. And everybody was calling for Wolsey's head, and Cromwell was this lone figure going, oh, but hang on, what about this, this, and this? And the king was impressed by the fact that there was one loyal person left over. Because, you know, as a paranoid king, he needed people who were loyal. And he started calling on Cromwell more and more. And it wasn't that he was really looking for a job with the king. The king just sort of kept going to him. And if the king asks for a favor, you, you have to do it. You don't get to say, no, I'm going to go back to being a merchant again. So Cromwell was just sort of there, you know, sort of right place, right time. And he was sort of given this job. It wasn't even really a set role. It was more just an advisor who would come in now and then. But Henry quickly realized he had somebody who was, because you're not high ranking, you don't have allies to call on. You are sort of trapped, essentially. You have to argue your own case. You have to do as you're told, the same way that Henry would never hit anybody that came into his chambers, but he would regularly hit Cromwell over the head if he was unhappy. He's the commoner. You know, you don't have to be kind. So it was a, a tricky balance for Cromwell. He had to sort of step in and take what was essentially forced upon him because he was not a happy man at the time. He was not in a, a good place, I don't think, mentally at all. Not that they sort of recognized those things then, but the opportunity came and he'd lost his whole family. His business was sort of collapsing and he just took on the opportunity because it was presented at that particular moment more than anything else. And at that time, Anne Boleyn was already highly favored by the king. Can you dispel any myths about that time, about what Cromwell's part in all of that was? Yeah, it's because they were both, well, I use the word Protestant. It wasn't very common in England until about 1539, but they were both, you know, reformists. They were both reading similar, similar literature. They were sort of thinking the same things, but they certainly weren't friends. When Cromwell was the man who was going to make Anne the Queen, essentially, he could see what laws they needed to change. 
in order to make that marriage legal. But I don't think he liked her especially much. And he didn't argue for her to be the queen, but he didn't argue for Catherine to remain the queen either. He just sort of left those women out of the business as much as he could because he was looking at it from a purely practical standpoint. We need to destroy the Pope. We need an archbishop who can proclaim this marriage legal. And he was working at these different angles as opposed to everyone's oh, we need to bring in the queen because she's so special and blah, blah, blah. And he was leaving the women out of it entirely. He didn't have a lot to do with Anne at all, particularly in those early years up until their marriage in 1533. Do you believe he was responsible for her downfall as so many have you know, claimed he was? Yeah, you have to take responsibility for it suggest that there's a plot going on in the court to take down a queen and Thomas Cromwell didn't know about it or wasn't being the one to plan it to make sure it was legal and it was going to work. Of, of course he was there. It's, um, it's not a nice thing to say about my favourite character that he had a, a queen killed, but it's the truth. You can't argue that at all. We all know how volatile, I think the word is accurate for King Henry, he would love someone and then he would hate someone. Cromwell fell victim to the, the very same whims. He would turn on someone and that was it. You were you were done. And then you call your man, Thomas Cromwell, and say, make it so. I know some people think that maybe Henry didn't know what was going on, that we know that that is rubbish. There was rumours of Anne's infidelity in late 1535 coming over from France. Stephen Gardner had heard it in the French court. It was just sort of, you know, slander, the usual rubbish that comes out of men against women they don't like. But the king was informed that these things were being said. So for him to then turn around at the last moment and go, oh, I'm so shocked, I had no idea, is absolute rubbish. There's quite literally paperwork stating that um, he had known that people were at least making these things up, which would have made a very convenient argument to get rid of her only a few months later. And then after her execution, I feel like when Jane Seymour became queen consort, we don't hear a whole lot about Cromwell during those months when she was queen. What was he doing during that time? He was extremely busy in that time. As soon as Anne was gone, the main thing was the succession. He was the one who had to make sure that that was legal. Uh, Mary at the time still hadn't sworn the oath of supremacy or the act of succession herself. He had to be the one to force her to do that, which was very unpleasant because they were actually quite good friends. Uh, Also, at the time, he married Gregory, his son, to Jane Seymour's sister, Elizabeth. I'm not sure why the king didn't take Elizabeth. She was just an absolutely wonderful young woman. And... That sort of sealed him to the Seymour family. He saw them as a really solid bet for the future. And then, of course, the pilgrimage of grace started at the end of 1536, in which it was at the height, 40,000 people were going to march to London because they wanted a return to Catholic law. They wanted their feast days back. They didn't want the monasteries to be destroyed. And if Thomas Cromwell had his head chopped off, they would all go home. So he was suddenly... Literally, public enemy number one. They would think that the commoners would have some sympathy for a man who rose up from their level 
And actually, they didn't care at all. They wanted noblemen in charge of them. They believed that that was their right, essentially. And he was the one that needed to be toppled to stop all these rebels. So in that time, he was very much under siege. Everyone at court was quite happy to sacrifice him to stop the, the war that was breaking out. And Henry was the only one who said, no, I'm not going to sacrifice essentially as my closest companion to these people making these demands. And Cromwell was extremely lucky in that time period that he didn't get his own head cut off to appease these people. Henry was surprisingly kind. It's probably one of the few times you can actually say that. But uh, Cromwell was generally just sort of getting on with business in 1537 while Jane was having her baby. They didn't hold parliament that year. So they were, he was, yeah, he was quiet, but he was in a very comfortable position. It was only once uh, Jane died that things started to fall apart again. And after she died, then the new quest for Cromwell was to find a new bride for the king. Yeah, um, it didn't seem to be a project that he wanted to take on at all. But within a few weeks of Jane's death, he had a list drawn up of who the appropriate people from overseas would be. Um, he didn't really necessarily want him to rush into a marriage, but it was just practical that everyone was looking to England at the time that the Reformation was taking hold in, in Europe. A lot of people were fighting, arguing, and finding a bride would help settle things down, particularly in religion. And um, Thomas Cramner, who was one of Cromwell's closest friends, the Archbishop, he was convinced that Henry needed to find his own wife in his own time, uh, a love match, preferably from England, just to keep things calm and quiet, Whereas Cromwell took on this huge project that I, I don't understand fully and I don't really agree with it, I hate to say, but he wanted to find a foreign bride that meant they had foreign allies, they could appease the Holy Roman Emperor with their choice, the King of France would be happy with their choice, and things would sort of almost create a treaty and settle the matter of religion all in one woman, which of course is impossible. But essentially, that's what he ended up having to do, and that's how he picked Anna of Cleves, who was the perfect choice if Henry didn't have such a ridiculous ego. It makes you wonder a little bit if Henry was trying to reclaim the glory years of Catherine of Aragon, his first, you know, his his first foreign bride. Yeah, you sort of look at it that he sort of had he thought he had this right, essentially to anyone he wanted. And he originally wanted um, Mary de Guise, who went on to marry into Scotland. She married Henry's nephew. So he thought, I'll have the Duchess of Milan. And she quite famously said, if I had two heads, I would gladly give him one. And he was looking at these women who were, you know, in the early 20s. And he was not a young man. He was not an attractive man. By this time, his legs had, were completely shot with the ulcers. He'd killed three wives in the eyes of these women who were possibly going to be his wife. And yeah, I think also when you look at how he went on to Catherine Howard so early, she was so young, he would have felt like he was 16 again. It would have been this wonderful time, you know, classic midlife crisis but sort of, you know, 1500 style, where you just get rid of one wife and bring in a new teenager. And yeah, he could have had a 
wonderful queen in Anna of Cleves, and he just blew it, essentially. Which is really, it's too bad because basically her downfall was his downfall. Yeah, he never really recovered after that point. I know a lot of people like Catherine. I personally don't really have any feelings on her either way. But he had this this woman who, she was a strict Catholic. He had certainly not let go of his Catholic thoughts. But, of course, Anna's brother was a really strong Lutheran. Anna's sister was extremely powerful. She was the electress of Saxony. They had their own armies. They could have had this wonderful ally right through northern Germany. And they had this woman who came to England in Anna, and everybody loved Anna. From the moment they met her, she was lovely. She was friendly. She was very accommodating. I mean, she married Henry, so she must have been. But they were holding jousts her within weeks everyone was talking about how beautiful she was how friendly she was the people were talking about how they wanted her to go on progress because she was so lovely and it was just henry just i don't know she didn't recognize him in a costume on the first day so he couldn't like her it just seemed so utterly ridiculous and that's one of the things that i love about our friend heather darcy's book on um, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, is that we get another look at it from the German perspective and see that maybe it had more to do than po- with politics than it did with Henry's personal taste with her. And that's kind of what it turned into. Yeah, that was uh, reading Heather's book is really quite a revelation. I think if anybody is interested in Henry VIII or the period, they should absolutely read her book. It tells a completely different story of why Anna was picked. It tells the story of what it was like when she really met Henry. It was a completely different narrative to what we're told. When Cromwell wrote up the papers for the annulment, they were using depositions that, you know, they were making it up, essentially, as they were going. They needed witnesses, they needed paperwork, and as Cromwell and all his sort of assistants could do, things just appeared out of air. And all this this notion that she was ugly and that Henry was repulsed by her and she was she reacted terribly on their first meeting, none of that took place. You know, they were giving each other gifts and they had dinner together and he stayed the night, not in that way, but he stayed at Rochester so he could have breakfast with her the next morning. And then he went home and sort of went, Ah, oh, if I marry Anna, I'm gonna have to go to war against the emperor because that's what her brother needs and instantly being tied to Anna meant you were tied to a war for duchies in Germany which were no value to England. France didn't want anything to do with it. They were stuck in the middle and trade would be cut off to England and suddenly between the period of Henry saying yes I'll marry her this is a nice painting and Anna arriving, things in Europe absolutely fell apart. And there's nothing that poor Anna could do about that. Thomas Cromwell's um, arrest, his downfall, it's such a spectacular story. Um, can you tell everybody kind of how that played out, how he showed up at the council meeting and, and what Norfolk did? Yeah, it was, it seemed to, when you look back at it, it didn't happen overnight, but essentially he was made the Earl of Essex in April 1540, and then everything was fine. He was working on getting the king out of the marriage, and 
he turned up to the Privy Council meeting after a morning in Parliament, and he was late for his meeting, which he never was. We don't actually know why. I had to sort of fill that in when I wrote it. He turned up late for this meeting, and the constable of the tower was already there. Suffolk was the head of the council at the time, and Norfolk just started essentially screaming at him that, you know, you're a traitor, you're going to be arrested, we've, you know, we've got you, you know, all these things, you're a heretic, you know, flying off the handle, as Norfolk was prone to do with Cromwell. And Cromwell had no idea what was going on. I mean, this is a man who came up with all the plots, and then suddenly this whole secret council had come up with a plot against him, and he was sitting at the head of the table of the Privy Council with all of his councillors laid out there being told that he was the traitor and it was over. Yeah, and Norfolk ripped his garter chain from over his shoulders. You know, traitors aren't fit to wear the garter and the Earl of Southampton took his garter tie off his leg. And Cromwell literally just stood there, stunned, and he, he threw his hat on the table and was screaming, you know, I don't need even a defence because I'm not a traitor. I've never done anything. The king would never turn against me. He was just totally shocked. And some of his closest friends in the world were sitting right there. His nephew Richard was there. He had um, Cramner was there. Audley was there. You know, his closest friends in the world. And they just sat there and they couldn't do a thing about it. Their friend was being hauled away on an attainder. There was to be no trial. And I'm sure that they they probably didn't want to speak lest they get dragged into it. Cramner was almost arrested himself the same day. He actually had to make a run for it from the palace. And it just, to him, it came out of nowhere. But I think had he had a little bit of hindsight, I'm sure those days in the tower, when he thought back, he could see where the mistakes were made. And then he wrote that letter to Henry VIII from the tower that's just heart-wrenching. Oh, yeah. Reading it was really hard. Writing it out, you know, I had to sort of rewrite it a bit just so it was a bit easier to read in modern English. He was genuinely upset. You could tell in his words. He, he could accept what had happened. He'd seen the paperwork that had gone through Parliament, that was his final attainer. It went through Parliament about three weeks after his arrest. Um, it was the most ridiculous little details. He'd had an argument with Norfolk one day, and he'd threatened Norfolk, essentially. He'd had an argument with Gardner, who was just the most awful man. They had had an argument privately, which they had done probably hundreds of times, and uh, Cromwell said a few things he probably shouldn't have. And it was taken in a literal sense. He said, you know, I would never turn from my religion. And if the king did, I would fight him. I don't think he meant literally. And Gardner said he was waving a sword in his hand. I mean, why would he even have a sword in his hand, for goodness sake? But he was he made a number of very small mistakes in the last year of his life, just sort of speaking out of turn, something like that. And just these little tiny details, that was really all they had to lay him out as a traitor. He was one of only two people who knew at the time that Henry was impotent. Not only did he not sleep with Anna, because that would tie him to a war in Germany, but he couldn't. Only um, William Fitzwilliam, the Earl of Southampton, knew. And Cromwell knew. And one night... I don't know why he would. He was with Risley, 
who I, I absolutely can't stand either. And he let it slip. And by all accounts, Risley turned around and gone to the king and said, you know what, I'm well said about you behind your back. And instantly, this attainder that's been pre-written, Henry has signed it in anger. And it has essentially been the downfall, you know, one little slip of the tongue. And these few arguments from a few months ago were suddenly created to be looked like this you know, big traitorous plot. It was really quite ridiculous. That's very similar to how George Boleyn um, did himself in, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he never put a foot wrong, George Boleyn. He's never done anything but serve the king and serve his sister. And essentially, he was he, he was killed for incest. You can't think of a, a more awful thing to be accused of. And, you know, just they pick on these tiny little details, and if it's out of context, that's it. You're cancelled. And, yeah, it's the same sort of thing. But then yeah. Cromwell was the one who signed the paperwork to say that George Berlin did these things. So, right. you know, you, you could argue that it's sort of karma coming home to roost. <laughs> right. And and wasn't it, if I remember correctly, at George Boleyn's trial where they had him read the paper and told them told him not to read it aloud? And yet he did. And that also had something to do with Henry VIII's impotence. Yeah, it was the same sort of, you know, Anne would have known, obviously, and she right. would have confided in people and, you know, read this out. You read something and then suddenly, oh, see, you said that out loud. I mean, it's just. <laughs> Just absolute rubbish. It's, it's men being babies, really. It's, it's toddler tantrums in uh, beautiful suits. And they, they lived on the whims of a man who knew he could play people like this, which was really sad because I don't think anybody deserved to have their head taken off, not at any point. They were always cutting heads off for people who had really done nothing wrong. It was, I know it was the time period, but it was all quite ridiculous. Thank you so much for for teaching us about Thomas Cromwell today. And now I'm going to move on to the last part of the show where I get to ask you the super fun questions. Okay. My first one is, I ask everybody this, who is your favorite of Henry VIII's six wives? Oh, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have had a really clear answer. I've always loved Catherine of Aragon. She was the original she was queen for more than 20 years. She was everything that a king could ask for. You know, she she had the King of Scotland killed in battle herself. When Henry was away, she had six children. I mean, that's a relationship that you can't argue against. Nothing that came after Catherine of Aragon anywhere near stood up to what they had been through together. But in the last year, doing Anna of Cleves, She's so interesting. She's been completely forgotten. I don't know who came up with the expression Flanders Mayor, but they need to be put on the scaffold because nobody ever said that about her. It was absolute rubbish. And I think between her and Catherine, uh, Henry had it all and he, he essentially pissed it all away. What is one thing that the listeners might be surprised to learn about you? About me? Gosh, well, I mean, I didn't start out liking history at all. So I guess I've sort of come to this sort of late. I was a sail maker when I was younger. Gosh, I'm feeling old when I say that. Um, I didn't study history at school at all. It wasn't even an option where I grew up. Um, obviously, I lived on the exact opposite side of the world to where Thomas Cromwell came from. 
So it was it was been quite a journey for me to find that I studied history when I lived in Spain. So I know their history much better than I know English history. But Thomas Cromwell was just the sort of person who drew me into everything Tudor related. So I got into it rather late. I knew Henry had six wives and little else until I was 30. And then since then, I've pretty much taken on every book that's ever written. You know, I have a whole library in my house now. If you were to recommend something for my listeners to watch that has Cromwell in it, what would that be? Oh, that would be when Netflix makes my book into a series. No, um, I don't think there is. <laughs> I don't think there really is a series that portrays Cromwell accurately. Uh, the Tudors, I know a lot of people say it is inaccurate, and it is, of course. Um, I would recommend that because he's portrayed, you know, neither hero nor villain. He's so I do quite enjoy that. I think that anything that gets people into the history is important. So it, no, it's not accurate, but it's a start. The same way that people read Philip and Gregory, it's you know hopelessly and inaccurate, but it brings a lot of people to the genre, to the history. So I'm a big fan of watching anything. If it gets you started, I'm not highbrow. I'm not going to say, oh, you must watch the most perfect thing that was made in the 1970s one time. I think anything you watch, it gets people interested. They make up their own minds about who they like and who they don't like. They find their own way. I don't think that we should be told one way or another, this is the best or this is the best. If you like Wolf Hall, you watch Wolf Hall. I found it a little slow personally. If you like the Tudors, watch it a hundred times. I know some people have. And in everything in between, I think we all have our own preferences. And people find their way to the history and the accuracy in their own time. I really liked Wolf Hall for the portrayal of Cromwell. It showed him in a different light than what we had seen before. It was like we were always told that he was this villain. But then when we, you know, watched Wolf Hall, we got to see a softer side of him, maybe a more human side of him. So maybe he's just an amalgamation of all of these different stories we've been told. I think after 500 years, I think all these people are simply what we want them to be, how we rewrite them. What Wolf Hall has done for Cromwell is immense. What Hilary Mantel has done is incredible. For Thomas Cromwell, her work is extraordinary, is without question. I have many times have thought, why do I write the same person as Hilary Mantel? It's like, <laughs> she's so wonderful. She's brought Cromwell back to the imagination entirely she's completely recast him she's done an excellent job without question it showed him as a man not as this schemer or this bully he was a whole person in his own right he had a whole glittering career within England and Italy before he ever met the king and she helped to create that you could see him for who he was not what he ended up as and now for the last question. This one's always my favorite. If I were to give you a time machine and you could safely return, when and where would you choose to go? Oh, that is such a hard question. Because, you know, if you go back and do anything, it would completely alter history. My first instinct would be to go back, of course, to save Thomas Cromwell. I would go back to when James Seymour died and warn him about the mistakes he was making 
about choosing the wife because had he picked a wife that Henry was happy with or allowed Henry to choose, things might have turned out differently. If Henry picked a bride and he didn't like her, how could dispatch her? He had dispatched other ones and he'd set that dangerous precedent in being able to dethrone or even execute a woman. But because he picked and it didn't work out, it all came back on his shoulders. So yeah, after Jane died, I would go back and say, oh, please, you need to be more careful with Norfolk and with Bishop Gardner because, you know, they're coming for you. But I think he probably knew the risks with what he was doing, but it's tempting. Even though I probably wouldn't be able to save him, I would absolutely do my very best without doubt. Are there any events during the Tudor era that you would love to be a fly in the wall for? Oh, well, that would be the, the princes in the tower I want to go back to. I know that's not technically Tudor, but I would, I'd love to know where those boys went. I'm Ricardian through and through, I must be honest. I, I love Henry VII as well, so it's always a sort of internal battle. I'd just like to know what happened to those boys. I don't think it alters. The Tudors at all. I don't think that Henry VII was a usurper by any stretch of the imagination. He won it on the battlefield, fair and square. But I'd just like to know what happened because, you know, I've got four sons. If two of mine disappeared, I would never rest. But yet their mother did not fight. So she knew what was going on. Surely she knew something. Something kept her quiet. So, yeah, I'd love to know what happened. Can you tell everyone how they can find you and where they can purchase your books? You can find me everywhere. I'm always on social media. Um, my website is carolineangusbaker.com. Sorry for the long name. On Twitter, I am writer underscore Caroline, and my Instagram is the same. Uh, I hate Facebook, but I am on there, Caroline Angus. And you can go to my website. It's got all the links to buy my books or on any Amazon site. They're all listed on there. But yeah, the website has all the links if you're looking for any particular information beforehand. And I'll include all the links when I post this as well. Caroline, thank you so much. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at TutorsDynastyPodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, Podbean, or anywhere you can find podcasts. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Creative Commons license via FilmMusic.io. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.